Hi there. Welcome to Bond Investment Mentor. I'm your host, Chris Nelson, and this is a podcast dedicated to helping community financial institutions master the art of fixed income investments. If you're working for a community bank or credit union and you have responsibilities for the investment portfolio, you've come to the right place. I'll be your personal investment guide as we help you boost your fixed income investment knowledge, level up your portfolio management skills, and help you gain the know-how you need to help your institution achieve its financial goals. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by a special guest. We're going to talk about interest rates, investing, and deposit rate setting strategies for community financial institutions. And as someone who's been through wild rate cycles before, I'm looking forward to hearing more about his perspective regarding today's environment. We have a lot of interesting topics to cover, so if you're ready to go, let's get started. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Bond Investment Mentor. If this is your first time here, I am glad you stopped by. And if this is a return trip for you, welcome back. Today's a special episode because I've brought along a guest, and I'm looking forward to what I expect will be a jam-packed conversation on a wide range of topics. But before we get to that, I want to take a minute to follow up on something that I mentioned during the last podcast episode. I was talking with a community banker recently, and they mentioned listening to the podcast. And in the last episode, I talked about being a virtual treasurer. And this banker wanted to know, well, what did you mean by that? And what exactly is a virtual treasurer? What do they do? And I explained that as a virtual treasurer, I specialize in helping community bank executives with their finance and investment needs. Now, while this includes investments in portfolio management, of course, it also involves providing guidance on things like liquidity management and planning or asset liability management and fine-tuning the ALCO process, and loan and deposit rate setting and hedging and derivatives, things like that. Working together, we would develop tailored solutions and strategies to optimize the institution's performance by balancing risk and reward while also boosting your finance skills. This isn't just about the strategies. It's about making the people I work with better community bankers. So if you're interested and you'd like to learn more about working with me as your virtual treasurer, drop me an email at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com with the subject line virtual treasurer or message me on LinkedIn and let's start a conversation. All right, let's move on to today's guest in our discussion. I'd like to introduce you to Neil Stanley, who is the founder and CEO of The Core Point. That's a firm that helps community bankers improve their institution's performance through attracting and retaining properly priced retail deposits. Before founding The Core Point, Neil spent more than 25 years as a bank executive holding a number of roles, including chief liquidity and investment officer, chief credit officer, president of community banking and CEO. Quite a lineup. In the time that I've known him, one thing I always enjoy about our conversations is the perspective that Neil brings, given his experience and the roles that he's held. And since this is someone that has seen his share of volatile interest rate environments, I thought it would be great to have him join me here on the podcast for a conversation. So Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I, I'm curious. Um, we were talking earlier. And you mentioned that, you know, you moved up the ladder pretty quickly during the earlier years of your banking career. And I'm curious, what was it that, that had, what was the reason for that? You know, talk a little bit about that. Well, I'd love to tell you I was so amazing, but that, that would be f wrong, factually incorrect. Uh, I started 
<laughs> Chris, I started out of an academic world where I was working on a PhD in economics. And I was basically working on a PhD in economics because there were no jobs uh, when I graduated from college in 1981. And if you can't get a job, maybe you can go to grad school. So I did. And after getting a master's degree, uh, what do you do? Well, maybe you work on a PhD. And so I was working on a PhD. And one day my wife came home and she said, it's time for you to get a real job. <laughs> so I went to work at the bank. And uh, it is not necessarily the best path to go from PhD student where you're challenging everything and you're taught to ask questions to become a trainee at a bank because they really just want you to follow the rules in 1984. And so that's what I was learned to do was to follow the rules, but keep some inquisitive nature along the way. And okay. yeah. as people were being terminated from their jobs. So here I am, I'm showing up uh, as a trainee and uh, all of a sudden people who had been with the bank a long time were dismissed. And as they were dismissed, the, Owners would look around and say, well, who do we replace them with? I don't know if we want to go out and hire somebody. Let's have this guy do it. And I said, well, sure, I'll give it a try. <laughs> and uh, I got promoted pretty quickly. I was the vice president uh, of the holding company uh, at the ripe old age of 27. I had no business being a vice president wow. of the holding company at that time, Chris, but I was. And and so and so you kind of begin this this very fast uptrack in a very interesting time um, for banking. Uh, I mean, most people that I will talk with these days, um, you know, and, and most bankers I talk with, they they don't have any understanding when we talk about the fact that what we've seen in interest rates in the last year, the last time we could point to this was late seventies, early eighties. Now, you weren't in banking when it happened, but it sounds like it, it had an impact on you because of the, the job environment. It definitely did um, because I couldn't get a job. So we felt the pain as uh, citizens of the United States of what was going on with, with interest rates. And then, of course, becoming a banker and uh, then realizing, and this is something that I think very few bankers today know, is that the senior uh, bankers at the time, the, the executive suite, knew very little about how to price deposits, for example. They knew quite a bit about lending, but when it came to pricing product and managing investment portfolios, keep in mind, think of how much unrealized loss would have been in those investment portfolios, right? As rates were rising, they were having huge, huge pain, and they didn't know how to price deposits because deposits had been set by the government. They were regulatorily set, so they couldn't right. set the price. So you talk about having a, a, a volatile environment. Um, you know, it was like, we think, hey, recent events seem like it's highly volatile. Uh, well, I guarantee you, if you went back in time with your time capsule and arrived in 1984, it was not calm and collected at all. Oh, exactly. And so as you look at what we've seen in the last, call it 12 to 18 months. I mean, we've seen interest rates shoot up again quite rapidly. It started off kind of slow and then they lit the tort, the, the rocket and off it went. Um, as you look at what we've seen, what are, what, are, what are your thoughts as you look at kind of uh, where we've been in the last year or so and what could be coming? I mean, obviously nobody knows, but, but what are your thoughts as you think about it, putting on your old banker hat here for a minute? 
Yeah. Well, let me start off with this. Um, two years ago, uh, when inflation was supposedly transitory and things were going on, I, I kept looking at the real interest rate. And what's interesting to me is if you bring up the term real interest rate to bankers today, they don't even know what that means, many of them. But when I was a, uh, a student in college, you never brought up interest rates without identifying what was nominal and what was real, because real was inflation adjusted. And we got so used in the last 30 years to inflation being 2% that we didn't talk about real interest rates. We just talked about interest rates. Uh, and so two years ago, when inflation became, you know, uh, reared its ugly head, uh, we started looking at the real interest rates and they were negative. And so you can't survive in negative real interest rates. And so I told everybody I could that this is unsustainable. And most people at the time said, oh, you know, maybe interest rates have to go up a little, but not much. And I'm going, no, inflation is going to be an issue until the monetary authorities do something about it. So I recently had occasion to appoint some regulators who were interested in some of the things I've been doing to a November 21 and through January 22 podcast that I was doing, a YouTube series where I talked about this topic and I, I wanted to make sure that they knew this wasn't something I just talked about in retrospect. I felt like in real time, uh, somebody needed to be dealing with this uh, back as we were transitioning in the Fed's policy. And it became very evident that they were going to pursue uh, a, a control of inflation. And so that's kind of what, uh, to me, this evolution was from, hey, we're going to pursue uh, Many people, we don't use it so much now. Modern monetary theory is, oh, the government can borrow as much money as it wants. And we now have direct evidence that the idea of the government just borrowing as much money as it wants uh, leads to some very un unhealthy kinds of circumstances. And that means interest rates are no longer going to be trivial. And I don't think we're talking, Chris, about a season of just a few uh, quarters uh, for non-trivial interest rates. I think interest will be interesting for the next three to four years. Well, that's true. And, and one of the things I've noticed is, you know, in, in kind of watching market sentiment, and you look at things like the Fed funds futures market, for example, uh, it's, it's a case now where the expectation is when the Fed meets in early May, there'll be a quarter point. I can, I can understand that. Okay, that makes sense to me. And, and the comments I'm hearing, yes, that makes sense. But then they're done. And almost immediately, when you look at the Fed funds futures, we're going to start, it's like hitting the, the hill on the top of a roller coaster. And we're all of a sudden, we're just going to start going back down again. And that's the head scratching moment for me, because I can sit here and I think I'm, I'm very much in line with you in that rates are, are where they are today. And I expect that the Fed will stop at some point. Uh, I, could, I could envision soon. But I think we're staying here. And, you know, I, I look at where we've been and, and you and I were in banking before we dropped to the zero interest rate environment. Um, I do not see uh, this as anything more than a normalization of rates. I mean, what we're experiencing for an interest rate environment today, this is where normal was for us 15, 16, 18 years ago. Well, if the audience is expecting a rigorous debate between people who disagree, they're not going to get it. 
<laughs> because what you just said is is just exactly how I see it. I think I think addicts have a hard time getting away from an addiction, even if they've had a pause on it. And I'm not trying to say literally we're addicted to low interest rates, but we've seen it and it's become such a norm for the last 15 years that many people struggle to believe that we could possibly survive with a four to 5% Fed funds rate. They just think it's going to be just devastating. What's so interesting, Chris, is to watch the normalization of new housing permits. Like, like you know that there are people who said, nobody will ever build another house because interest rates are now 6.5%. Like, how, could, how can you think that way? Stop. You're applying a, a logic that you have assumed from 15 years of zero interest rates. And, you know, there's some factual things about the norm that we developed. In other words, it lasted a long time. It was 15 years. But the idea that somehow or another we can't survive with anything above a 3% Fed fund rate, I just don't know where that became real. In fact, I would tell you that for the first 20 years of my career, society would have said, you can't survive with interest rates less than 3%. And now we act like you can't survive with them greater than 3%. And I just don't know where either one of those things can be um, can be held so strongly. And that's why this futures market wants to continue to, to speculate that rates are going to fall. And so, you know, I just pulled it up here. The CME FedWatch tool uh, has a prediction that by September of 24, the expected current value is 2.94. So they've got it dropping from the expected value in June at 5.26. That's a huge amount of decline. And if you look at the core PCE, which is the Fed's governing uh, metric for inflation, it never went that high, folks. In other words, it, it's not nine months down to five something. We're talking about very modest decline in, in what the Fed's going to look at for inflation. It's Inflation is declining. I acknowledge that. But it's not falling like a rock. And so I think it's really hard to justify these expectations. So I'm curious, as as someone who you know, you you mentioned you've been in banking since the since the the mid 1980s. The one thing I think about is the you know prior to you know other than the Volcker phase, the last time we really saw a meaningful upward move in rates that had an impact, particularly on the fixed income markets, was in the uh, early to mid 1990s, 1994 specifically. Um, I'm curious. With the experience you've had, because you know you were dealing with things like the investment portfolio and things along the line along the way there, uh, what what were some of your thoughts and observations as you think back on you know that and looking at it with what bankers are dealing with today? So you're you're bringing back some very vivid memories. Um, young banker getting promoted at a, a very young age to a high level position. Got I, I was able then to to make some decisions, but also put myself in position where I could I took a lot of risk. And one of the things that happened was the owner and I one day were looking at our bond portfolio in the in the in the late 80s, and we were saying, hey, what should we buy? Uh, we've got some funds we need to invest. What should we buy? Should we buy a two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year, six-year? What what term should we buy? Let's buy some treasures. We had out the Wall Street Journal, and we're looking, and the owner says to me, Don't we want higher yields? Well, 
what am I going to say to the owner who has many years more experience than I do? And I'm not going to say, no, we want low yields. So I said, well, yeah. He said, it looks to me like the longer terms have higher yields. Let's buy those. So I dutifully execute his, what I thought was a decision. A year later, I get this message from the owner. Hey, I noticed those bonds you bought a year ago are now significantly underwater. We have unrealized losses in these bonds, Neil. How are we going to deal with this? Uh, we, me, you, how, who, who's, who's making these decisions? And I thought to myself, okay, uh, from here on, every time I buy a bond, I'm going to stress test what that's going to look like into the future. And as you know, Chris, I'm talking about forward implied yields. Like what's going to be the consequence? I'm talking about total return analysis. Those were not terms that yours truly learned from some sort of scholarly exercise. I learned it in the school of hard knocks because I was put in a position where I felt like my job was threatened because I didn't know what questions to ask and what analytics to produce when the owner says, don't we want higher yielding bonds rather than lower yielding bonds? If, in fact, I would have shown him the consequence of future yields using a forward implied yield analysis, uh, he would have said, okay, now I know the risk-reward trade-off. Ah, risk-reward trade-offs. Uh, you would think a PhD student in economics that before he came to, to the bank would have carried some of those things in. Well, I carried the mentality, but I didn't have the tactics, the techniques. And I said, if I'm going to survive this industry, I've got to develop that. So uh, I'm answering your question with kind of a long-winded story, but but everything that I see today that's matured and I look at it and go, yeah, I wish somebody would have given me an indoctrination. But then when I think about it, Chris, they could have given me a great indoctrination, but I wouldn't have understood the context of it had I not been in that seat when I got that message. Hey, what about those bonds you bought and they're underwater? It's vivid. You do not forget those lessons. Right. And well, and you know, to me, you know, what's what's compounded that situation uh, is because to me, there's two components that played out this last time. It, one is obviously there were bankers that looked at the curve, looked at the environment. And I know, there were, I know there were bankers out there that were being told, you know, don't buy anything with unless there's a number other than a zero on the front end of the yield. This is back in 2020 when the 10-year got down to 53, 54 basis points. But to me, what compounded this, and it, it, I don't know if it was as big a factor when you were in the story you're telling, but it was not only maturity, but it was the optionality of these yeah. securities now, because what was happening was bankers had been buying bonds that e either they had a call option embedded. A lot of times it was agencies, but what a lot of bankers learned this time was munis. They, they found out, oh, there's a call option that if it falls out and I buy a long maturity, I'm in a, I'm in a little bit of hot water. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, you know, the extension that happened there uh, and then on top of that uh, with mortgage securities, which I don't know how prevalent that was. It sounds like you were doing mostly bonds in your, in your original portfolio, yeah. but the, a, a lot of bankers don't think about the optionality that's embedded within those. And all of a sudden they're watching prepayments go from right. really high 2020, 2021 to really slow and durations are shooting out. Right. Principal cash flows are, are are dropping, and that that's where I think people got caught. Yeah. So, 
So you can imagine that, um, so our organization that I was with had 21 different charters. And so we had all these different management teams and I was managing the investment portfolio. And so I had to learn to put things in language that wasn't super sophisticated in terms of the, the, the verbiage. And so I learned to say it this way. Hey, you know, if we buy bonds with call, callability, whether they're uh, pay down bonds or, or uh, discrete calls, just think of it this way. They will depreciate according to the maturity term. They will appreciate according to the first call date. And if that helps you understand the pain of optionality, uh, we would have bankers saying, hey, you know, we should buy these bonds because they have higher yields on them. And I said, okay, they have higher rates, but what are the yields to call? What are the yields to maturity? Let's think about that. And let's understand that we're only going to get the worst of those two because the, the treasurer on the other side of this deal is going to manage for their optionality that they have priced into this deal. And the reality is, the only time you win with callable bonds, and I'm and I'm not saying that I never bought callable bonds. I I did, but I bought callable bonds knowing that the market had uh, priced in more volatility than what was really going to happen. In other words, I want to buy the premium rate that they've built in because it's actually not going to rates are not going to move, and I'm going to get paid something on something that's not going to get called. Uh, and so we started talking about that with the, the senior leaders of, hey, the bond portfolio needs to be recognized that optionality is always going to work against us. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't shouldn't buy it. We just need to know what the option adjusted spreads are and how much value we're getting when we're buying a call. And if you tell me you think rates are going to move volatility, we shouldn't be buying callable bonds. We should be buying bullets if we're going to have a lot of volatility in the interest rate environment. Well, and the thing that you mentioned too is the fact that when you're looking at these bonds, and I've seen this happen with brokers, not all brokers, but with some brokers, they will they'll dangle that carrot of the more attractive yield out there and say, "Well, look what you could get if this happens." And it's like, well, that's like saying, "Look what you could get if you won the lottery next week." In some cases, you know, um, my approach has, was always when I was managing uh, the bank portfolio was always assume you're going to get the worst you know, the yield to worst, assume that. And if the other one happens, it might be frosting on the cake, although it, it depends on what caused that to happen. Um, but, but yeah, that I agree with you on that in that the, you've got to look at the, the, both sides of the optionality. And this is where a lot of bankers got caught in the last yes. year, year and a half, um, because they were looking through a yield prism and that in the lower yield lens, I guess, is the better way to put it. Yeah. And that was it. And they weren't thinking about what what it was taking to get that yield or if they could even get achieve that yield. Now, I'm curious with what we've seen recently, of course, everything in the news recently has been Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank and so forth. And, you know, it's the impact on, on what's going to happen. And one of the things that I, I believe has changed, and I'm, I'm kind of switching away from the, the investment portfolio here for a minute, uh, is the change that we've seen as it relates to deposits. And I know this is kind of your wheelhouse. And you know, one of the things that, that jumped out to me, two things have jumped out to me. The first one is the speed with which uh, a bank's liquidity situation can change. And I know I've talked with a few clients recently, and we've... Uh, we've talked about the fact that you've got to take 
your assumptions, whatever you thought could happen with your deposit base. And I, I said to one bank client, I said, throw them out. Mm-hmm. You've just, you've got to start from scratch. I said, you know, assuming that you can have a situation, a scenario where you can say, well, we expect 10% of our deposits to run off over the next 30 days as, as our stress test. And I said, you know, I said, really, I feel like you've got to double one and cut the other in half. I said, at a minimum, I said, you're, if you're saying your assumption is 10% runoff of deposits in 30 days, change that to 20% runoff in two weeks and tell me what it looks like. And mm-hmm. I said, that might still not be enough, mm-hmm. but it just seems that we're, we're in this, the age of the iPhone, I call it, as it relates to yeah. liquidity and the speed. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank was gone in 40 hours-ish. So what are your thoughts in terms of the speed aspect of what we're seeing on the liquidity front as it relates to anything on the balance sheet? Well, first of all, the they got to that position because the depositors uh, really valued the fact that they could move the money anytime they wanted. And so the idea that we were going to leave all this uninsured deposits in a bank, they were they were comforted by the notion of the fintech, the, the technology here for transferring money gives us instantaneous ability. If we get uncomfortable, we can move it when we're when we're uncomfortable. And that all makes sense until everybody becomes uncomfortable at the same time. And in a social media world, that's pretty easy to envision. Everybody having this uh, viral experience of, hey, so-and-so might be in trouble. Did you check their uniform bank performance report? They don't have any tangible capital left. Well, then I get my money out. And if you have everybody hitting that button on the same day, man. Well, the other thing that I think is a big factor here too, Neil, is the is the you know as I mentioned the speed, but also the the reduced you know, the friction, as you said. Um, you know, this was a case where if you know the last time we saw prior to what happened with uh, with Silicon Valley Bank, the last time we really saw a major run, if you want to call it that, was IndyMac in two thousand eight which was more of what I would look at as the traditional run on the bank. People went down to the branch, got their money, you know, well, that's what I call a pre iPhone bank run. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to your point, the ability to move funds can now be done by picking up your, your device, punching a few buttons, shoop, there it goes. And you know, it, that, that the speed with which that can happen, I, I think you've got to throw out, your assumptions as it relates to what you think could happen with liquidity and, and pay attention to that. And then the second piece of that is that traditionally speaking bank and and please correct me if I'm wrong on this in your, in your history of looking at this, this information, but that bank deposits have generally had a much stronger correlation with the capital market moves in terms of what was happening with rates at all points along uh, the yield curve, this time it feels different to me. Uh, there was always a lag. There was always a, a reduced amount. It was never necessarily a 100% lockstep or for those of you that do ALM models, a 100% beta, but there was always a move. If rates went up, deposit rates went up with a little bit of a lag. This time in the last year, that hasn't been the case. And I don't know if that's because bankers, again, those that had have lived through rising rate environments were used to quarter point, quarter point, quarter point. It was this drip 
type of move, as opposed to these 75 basis point moves. And the market got ahead of them and, and got away from them. And I think, I think you're on it there with the velocity of rate change is part of why the beta was so low at the beginning. The other part of it that's very true is that the this was inspired by Fed action to deal with inflation. In the past, when rates were rising, it was because loan demand was strong. It was aggressive. And the loan to deposit ratios, if you look at any other time when rates were rising, they were much higher, relatively higher than what they've been through this, the first part of this rate rise. So most banks, even not that long ago, Chris, there were banks I would talk to and they'd say deposits. If you want some, we'll give you some. Nobody's giving away deposits today. But it wasn't long ago they were saying, if we could just get rid of some of these deposits because we don't want to. We don't want to have the capital to, to keep our ratios in line. We would be gladly get rid of deposits. But what's happened here is we've had low loan to deposit ratios in many banks. And they've said, we're just going to opt out. Because until we use up our inventory of excess deposits, we're just going to opt out of the rate increase. And that isn't historically what normally happened as rates were rising, the economy was hot, loans were loan volume was great. And so every bank was in there trying to compete and get their share of deposits. They couldn't opt out. This time, some of them have, some of them haven't, but it's created a mixed bag and a much lower beta, at least at the beginning of this trend. That's changing though. Well, and, and one thing I know I can remember thinking back when I was wearing my treasurer's hat was to your point, to me, there were always two factors that drove my thinking process as it related to deposit pricing and deposit strategies. And one was certainly my needs. You know, what was my demand and so forth? Did I need deposits? And based on that, I would, you know, move my, adjust my rates more aggressively or less aggressively. But at the same time, I still felt that tie to, I'll, I'll just call it the capital markets in general. And so, even if my demand for deposits hadn't moved in a material fashion, if I was starting to see a trend develop where rates at certain points along the yield curve were moving and were starting to get a little bit ahead of where I was, and I'd look at the treasury curve, I'd look at my wholesale funding curves at the home loan bank and things like that, um, I knew that I was going to have to go to my to my ALCO and say, listen, we're at a point where we need to start talking about making some adjustments to rates. Yeah. Uh, I'll just throw out this statistic at the end of December. This isn't all banks. This is just some of the clients we work with. The spread, the funds transfer pricing spread on the median uh, client was 192 below FHLB. So these are new and renewed time deposits. And, and bankers will say, oh, CDs, that's just a rate game. Everybody's just paying high rates. Well, when, when did you make 200 basis points spread between that and FHLB? That's very rare. Even I don't care how far you want to go back. That's why I'm saying that's why we can see these betas being very low because the competition didn't all jump on this rising uh, rate at the same time. And they gave that lag, gave many uh, banks the ability to create deposit-based spreads that are much bigger than historical. So, you know, I'm a big believer in funds transfer pricing. Uh, most bankers will tell you what their cost of funds is and what their yield on assets is. 
But really what you need to know is uh, every dollar that's booked, what's our spread, uh, funds transfer pricing spread on new loans? What's our fund transfer pricing spread on deposits, new ones? And then what's our mismatch spread? And when you break down the spread into those three components, you are ready to analyze the performance of your organization. Otherwise, you're just using the swag. Hey, you know, here's our portfolio uh, of loans. Here's our portfolio of deposits. It's just, it's very arbitrary analysis. One question I've got for you as it relates to what we've seen play out here recently, again, uh, as it ties back to things like Silicon Valley, Signature Bank in New York, and so forth. I keep seeing these stories where I'm hearing about how deposits are leaving you know, smaller institutions and, you know, that the depositors are seeking the safety, and I'll use that term somewhat loosely, of the too big to fail institutions. Mm. But then I have conversations with my clients. I have conversations with other community bankers who have said to me, our deposits have actually held steady. Our deposits have grown. It just feels like there's a disconnect here. And I'm just curious to see what you're hearing and what your take is on this, because somewhere that I feel like I'm missing a piece of this story or something. Yeah, this may be one of those those complicated scenarios where the the too big to fail banks. Uh, I think it's reasonable to expect that they received a windfall from this, but I think the community banks also received a bit of a windfall. The idea that all and when we see the media, they tend to have a hard time understanding the difference between a community bank and a regional bank. And I think they lump them together. And so when they talk about these stories that they probably have found cases where there are banks who are banking big clients who are nervous and they are looking for solutions and and going. Some of them are just going to the treasuries. Hey, I've got some money uh, and I can put some of it aside for a while. Gosh, you're going to see treasuries grow at these yields. And so that's the competitor to the banks, not just other banks. Uh, and and as that's happening, you're probably seeing some growth in the big banks, but I'm not. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that community banks are going to lose a lot of deposits in this first quarter. But I don't think it's going. to, I definitely am not predicting growth in the community banks. And yet, I've had many bankers say, "Hey, we've grown deposits." Uh, that may be true, but I don't think collectively that's going to be true. And to me, I mean, I started talking about this last late last fall before everything kind of blew up here recently, but it started to feel with what we were seeing at the rate environment and what could play out. You know, there I think liquidity management was something that as a skill set went dormant for about two to three years, call it roughly. Um, but it's back, baby. That's the only thing I can say is uh, is if, if you need to you know sharpen your your liquidity management skills again, it's this is the time. Well, but, I'm going to look at it this way. I, I don't think it just went dormant in the last two or three years. I think basically we're running we're running the equivalent of a marathon right now. And the only thing people did maybe in 2018 was they they ran a couple hundred yard dashes. But we're back to running a marathon, and you better be ready to you know to to strap in and and be able to compete for funding and know what your value proposition is. This idea of hey, we just have a bank and therefore we're funded. That's just an assumption that's way too vast. It needs to be, it needs to be a strategic initiative that says, you know, what is our unique selling proposition? Why do people really bank with us? What are we doing that's intentional? That's not just, you know, we just happen to be here in this spot and people just love us. What is it that we're doing that causes people to say, that's where I'm putting my money? If we can't articulate that, we've got a problem. 
And I think the challenge that that we're seeing now, and and you know, we chatted about this uh, earlier, is is been the response to managing that deposit base in this very rapidly changing rate environment. And you know, as as I look at it, I've seen kind of two things playing out here. One is that there has been there's been no what I call normalization as you know of the of each institution's I call it each institution's personal deposit yield curve. When you're looking at your overnight rates, your savings account, your money market rates, and so forth, versus your various terms along the the CD, you can create a yield curve for ABC Bank, XYZ Credit Union, whatever. You can Mm -hmm. do that, but then you compare what your yield curve looks like for your institution against the markets to gauge where you are. I'm not saying you want to go there, to your point, that then you're just living and dying by the wholesale funds, by the wholesale funding rates. But this is where I think a lot of banks found themselves kind of caught behind the eight ball. And then last year, what we started to see in response to that was, well, we're not going to move our rates and all we're going to do, we'll do specials and hopefully we won't cannibalize deposits, but we'll, we'll do our best, you know, and, and we'll, that's, that's what we're going to do. And it, it, to me, it was just delaying an, an inevitable situation that right. a fresh look needed to be taken on on the deposit rate environment because right. that's they call them core deposits for a reason. So. Yeah, yeah. So the core deposit thing is also a topic that can go at lots of crazy places because uh, people today, I think a lot of bankers think core deposits are anything other than a CD. Oh no, that is not true at all. I, I challenge that completely. You have a lot of, of, of accounts that are not CDs that are not core deposits. And actually, term deposits can be very core. But basically what you're saying here, let me go back to your, your the, the question you're really asking, is how are the bankers navigating a world in which the interest rates are no longer trivial and the yield curve has some oddity to it with the inversion? And there's a lot of questions about what rates are going to be in the future. And so what the industry has done is said, hey, guys, let's just not do anything and let's see who cares. And if they care, call and get an exception. And that worked a little bit at the beginning, but the exception pricing has just exploded. And the managerial requirements to keep track of, hey, did we give this and what did we do for them and how... They are just getting inundated with the challenge of keeping people on track. And nobody's trained anyone to manage those relationships. All those relationship managers are doing is saying, hey, they don't like our quoted rate. What are we going to do for them? And everything's a slippery slope then. And that's a big part of what we've learned over the years, going back to the 80s, is you got to prepare for the exception pricing, not when you get the call from the front line that says, what are we going to do for so-and-so? You have to build in your strategy. What products are you going to offer? What's the sequence of which you offer those products? And where's your exception pricing at? What level today is our exception pricing? And let's have a consistent approach to that. No different than managing an investment portfolio. You wouldn't approve the investment portfolio policy that says, hey, you know what? Every day when the investment portfolio manager wakes up, we're just going to trust that they'll do the right thing. That's what the policy would say. Hey, hey, we'll just, we're just going to trust they'll do the right thing. There's no 
parameters about maturity, no parameters about uh, spreads, no parameters about uh, yields. It's just, hey, let's just, we'll call it when we see it, we'll know it when we see it. And on the deposit side, we have this ad hoc exception pricing that really didn't matter that much, Chris, when interest rates were 0.25. If we paid 0.3, 0.4, 0.5, it's all kind of the same. It's not the same now. We're talking about deviations from 1% to 5%. And the ad hoc exception pricing is exploding in in problematity. It's, It's just becoming so difficult to keep track of why did we do that for them? Should we do this for this one? How are we going to justify this to anyone, our regulator? How, how does this work? And the, the the problematic nature of this is causing the industry to have to understand liquidity in a very much more robust world, not just on the wholesale level, which we've talked about capital markets, but what are we actually going to do with those people that we have face-to-face relationship or or video-to-video relationship with? How are we going to negotiate with them? Much more like commercial lending has been done. Now we're doing it with the depositor base and pricing is relevant again. Well, and you know, there's a couple of things that come to mind. I mean, as you were describing that situation, I and I was thinking about it from an investment portfolio standpoint, when situations present themselves, you have a choice. You can act or you can react. And a lot of what we've been seeing over the last year has been reaction, which is it a strategy? Sure. Is it a good strategy? Eh, not all the time. It's it's a dynamic new world. And it's, I'm an old guy. I've been around banking since 1984. But Chris, this is the most interesting time of my career. This is the most, I think we as an industry have the most potential to serve people as we've ever had. And I love that. So I guess with with you know, with what we've been talking about as it relates to the the deposit side of things, the liquidity side of things, and so forth, and and the 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 traditional and and versus you know what what some would call you know different responses. Talk a little bit about what you do at the core point and how you do what you do for community financial institutions, especially with the conditions that are going on now. So the the core point came out of uh, an understanding of capital markets that we needed to bring sophistication to the banks. So I knew I was ahead of my, <laughs> I was ahead of the industry back in 2010 when I launched the business. But basically, Chris, what we do is we bring as a turnkey solution, we being, bring new processes. We need bring new products. We bring a platform. It looks a little bit like a Bloomberg terminal, but it's designed not for managing fixed income securities, but for managing bank deposits. And then we do training. Uh, Some people have said Neil calls his company a software company, but it's really a training company for bankers that happens to use a particular brand of software. And then I'm an Alco person. I love tracking the results. So that's how I know that we, we had about 200 basis point was the median spread on deposits because our clients all send in us data at the end of each month. And we can see the funds transfer pricing spread on every new and renewed account. And when you put that together, the processes, the products, the sales platform, the training, and the tracking of results, what you're really doing is you're upgrading in very, very efficient ways the management of funding. 
And if any banker who wants to spend uh, years on this topic as we have would eventually come up with the toolkit that we have, but it's going to take time. And many bankers do not have the time to test and learn and make the mistakes and say, oh, we can't do it that way anymore. We're going to do it this way. And the good news for us is that we're in position to help people right now who have issues with their frontline not being able to negotiate these exception pricing requests, the, the management team saying, I don't know what we're going to do because nobody seems to be cohesive. The finance team saying this, retail saying this, marketing is trying to do this. We bring a collective energy to that. So thank you for asking. Well, and I think the thing you touched on as as you described it, it you know, the, the the discipline and the strategic approach, you know, to me, one of the things I've been talking about recently on the podcast, and I and I do this actively now as part of my training, is the investment strategy. Having a having a plan in place that allows you to say, this is what we need, this is what we're willing to take on for risks to do it, using that same strategy to manage the process of accumulating the investments, using it to communicate to your management, to your board, to your regulators, this is why we do what we do. And we know conditions are going to change. The, you know, A strategy that's only good until conditions change isn't a strategy. Right. It's at best a plan, and I don't even know if it's that. Yeah. But, but, but with what you're describing, it sounds like it's a funding strategy or a deposit funding strategy. Here's a methodology that's going to get us what we need at a level of cost that we're comfortable doing. It allows us to communicate to our team, to our customers, to management, to regulators. This is how we're doing it. Is I mean, it sounds like very much a similar approach. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's it's a it's an approach that's been designed and refined over a long time. So it's not rigid. You can't do rigid. Um, the rate sheets don't work today because whatever rate you have on there, it may be good for the sleeper, but it's not for the curious and it's not for the rate shopper. But if you put the, the price on for the rate shopper, you're way overpaying for the sleeper. So you've got to have agility. And so basically, we like to think of it as boundaries and guardrails. And then you teach people how to have a conversation, and they love it. Because in today's environment, they feel so inadequate when they hand out the rate sheet, get somebody a cup of coffee, and they come back to take their order, and they look at it and go, well, I'm not going to do this. And they say, oh, I'll call for an exception. Well, that they have no competency. They're just, they're just an order taker, product pusher. So when we give them the guardrails and we give them the, uh, the boundaries that they can work within, and we give them the tool set to negotiate something that has mutual value, isn't that what banking is? Negotiating financial arrangements that have value for the, for the client and value for the bank simultaneously? We're just getting back to the essence of banking that we lost because it, interest rates were trivial. And so oh, we just put whatever you want on that sheet, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4. It doesn't matter. It now matters. And we're so thrilled to be in position to help people. I'll give you one little observation here. So every time that we make a, an offer to a, a depositor, we dollarize. We dollarize the value of that account over time. Now, digital banks have been doing this for a long time, but community banks have just used that rate sheet. 
The other thing we can do, we teach our people to do, is show how we stack up against the competition. Because if somebody's focused in on investing money for a period of time, and they say, hey, I can go elsewhere and get a higher rate. Well, why wouldn't we want to show them how many dollars difference it is? I mean, every time we work with one of our new clients, and we'll find out, hey, the best banker in the in that particular institution is doing it with a spreadsheet. And they love the idea that somebody is doing it the same way they are, but they've systematized it and made it super convenient. Hey, you can show all the competition right here using this screen. Well, thank you. This takes a lot of work and effort that I used to have to do. And this is exactly what the reason I've been a top banker here is because I have negotiated with them from a position of knowledge, information, and value proposition. So uh, two, two last questions. First of all, if someone wants to learn more about what it is that you do and about the core point services, how can they get in touch with you? So our website is thecorepoint.com. And you will find on there, there's a, a link to a, an appointment app. Uh, and just get a demo and you can just uh, click on that. Uh, so you can also email me at neil, N-E-I-L, at thecorepoint.com. And more than happy to set up a presentation and look at your situation at, at every financial institution. I'll, I do a little background research before I, before I get into uh, showing you what we do. And then we try to make sure it's in context of your situation. And we try to offer a few ideas that, uh, that you might find useful. Uh, we have about a toolkit of best practices. It's got 30 different items on it. Uh, and we we love showing off that that list of best practices. Some of them are intuitive, and some of them are things that bankers go, I've never heard of that. So it's a lot of fun to introduce them to it. Very cool. All right. So my last question for you is is this, uh, especially you know you and I have are these people that have been around the block a few times. So given what you know today about things like fixed income investing, the balance sheet, and deposit gathering, and so forth. What are one or two things that you would tell your younger self if you could go back to that guy in the 1980s who's just getting started in banking? Well, I do remember some woulda, coulda, shoulda moments. Um, I'll, I'll tell you about a, an instance that happened in the Iraq war uh, where interest rates popped up and they were double digit again. They hadn't been double digit since the 80s. And so we're talking, man, this is an opportunity. Instead of just buying some bonds, I thought this is going to be the opportunity to hit a home run. So I called the ownership of the organization and I said, I would love to buy really long bonds and a, a, a portion of our portfolio, not all of it, but a portion of it. And I'd really like to extend because I can get 10% yields right now. Could I buy some 30-year bonds? And I pressed too hard. And not only could I not buy those bonds, Chris, I was told not to buy any bonds. The stuff that I could have bought normally, like the four, five, six-year bonds, I was then prohibited from buying any bonds when the season was double digit. And the takeaway for me is not so much about knowing the financial part as knowing the emotional part of the audiences that we work with. Every day we're interacting with people who know that managing money is important, but their emotions have to be respected in that issue. If it's their capital and I'm managing it or I'm they're my clients, 
put their emotions first, then work within the options that I have as a money manager to satisfy their priorities. Because my owner wanted to make money, but he was way too scared that interest rates were going to take off. We all know that that didn't happen. Those those 10% bonds for 30 years back in, in 1990, we would have just closed them out and they would have been amazing. But anyway, it's really about connecting with, with the way people actually make decisions, which is a mix of emotion and logic. And after 40 years in this, I think I respect the emotion a lot more than I did when I was a young banker. That's a, that's a great, actually, that's a great takeaway because when you're talking about the, you know, reading the, taking the emotional pulse, think about the levels as a banker, you know, particularly someone in this audience who has to think about thinking both up and down, as I call it. You're thinking about, there's the, you know, we were talking deposits, the customer, but you're also talking your internal management, your board, your ALCO, a regulator, you know, there, and, and to your point, there's a lot of logical explanations for doing things, but you've got to marry that with the emotional filter that that has to run through, you know, in your audience and understand that aspect of it. There's, there's a balancing act that has to happen there. So that's, that's, that's awesome. That's an awesome, that's an awesome lesson for today that the class is dismissed on that. So. <laughs> well, thanks for asking. <laughs> so absolutely. No, Neil, this has been great. I'm glad we had a chance to just sit down and have a chat. Um, and if people need to get in touch with you, they can email you, they can check out the, the website. Um, but uh, thanks so much for being here and uh, sharing your, your experiences and, and kind of your, your outlook too. My pleasure. And I hope that you found our conversation helpful. If you have any questions about anything that Neil and I talked about, please feel free to email me at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com or reach out to Neil directly and either of us will be willing to answer your questions. Well, I'm glad that you stopped by and I want to thank you for checking in. Bond Investment Mentor is written and produced by me, Chris Nelson. The information, views, and opinions expressed during the podcast belong solely to myself and my guest. And any ideas and strategies contained within the podcast are for educational and informational purposes only and do not constitute investment, accounting, or legal advice. If you like what you're hearing, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please consider leaving a rating or review as it helps others discover and learn more about the podcast. If you'd like more information about fixed income investing and portfolio management, head right over to the website, bondinvestmentmentor.com, and you'll get articles, tips, and resources there to help you manage your institution's investment portfolio and learn about the ways in which I can help you, including being a virtual treasurer. You can also follow me on social media. I'm on LinkedIn at Christopher Nelson CFA and on Facebook at Bond Investment Mentor. I would love to catch up with you there. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks so much for stopping by. Have a good one.